Fun, fun. Let's do it. Let's do the vote. Um, there's going to be two groups of people in the room tonight. One group of people who, when you think of Christmas, you think of the traditions, you think of the families, you think of the food, you think of the celebrations, and you think, I love Christmas. I'm just, I'm bonkers for it. The presents were bought in October. The tree, the, the, the tree has been up since November. You've already had six packets of Pfeffernoose hanging out on your, your dining room table. If you are in team I Love Christmas, can you raise a hand? Yeah, that's pretty good. And there's another group of people in the room. You are on team I'm an introvert and all these festivities are death to me. I don't particularly like my family. Um, why do we eat English hot food in the Australian summer, this whole thing? Welcome to the silly season where people do silly things for silly reasons and I, I find Christmas a bit difficult and I don't like it much. Is there anyone brave enough to be like I'm one of those? We've got one. Yeah, we've got a few. Yeah. It, similar ratios this morning where most of the church was on Team Christmas and a few of you were on Team Bar Humbug. Um, it's lovely that you could come and join us in the grace of Jesus. My, per my personal preference, I'm on Team Christmas. I love it. I love it. Um, I had uh, fond memories of it as a kid, going to catch up with my extended family who we didn't get to see super duper often. Um, it was always a special time of year. And then becoming a Christian a little bit later in life, when I say later in life, I was 17. Um, but coming to find out that these Christmas carols that I'd been singing since I was in school are deep songs of worship with significant meaning and suddenly are just like wonderful, wonderful songs, even if they try to ruin them at the supermarket. Was just, it's just a thing that I've never kind of gotten over. I love uh, the Christmas season. And I think part of what I love about it is that this time of year helps to create in me, and I think in others, a healthy spiritual rhythm. There's a routine to Christmas, spiritually speaking, which is of use um, as a church, to celebrate this season, we're going to be making our way through the Christmas narrative found in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. That's going to take us all the way up to um, our Christmas service. Um, what we're doing in this Christmas season is, in some ways, we are reenacting the spiritual condition of God's people as they waited for His first arrival in the world. One of the things that's difficult for us here to get our heads around when it comes to that first Christmas was just the sheer weight of expectation that, um, that kind of leads into these events. What do I mean by that? The traditional, time, uh, the traditional name for this period of, of the year is called Advent, which is a Latin word which means coming. It's because we are celebrating the first coming of Jesus. But this coming has another meaning. Um, Advent has another implication. If he is coming, that means he has not yet arrived, which means we are waiting for his arrival. Um, uh, Elise and I just welcomed a, a, a young baby into our family. I'm sure you've heard me talk about that a million times. It was all very exciting. I've got this lovely photo at home of Elise at nine and a half months pregnant with this tummy sticking all the way out to here. And I remember talking to her just before Edith was born and saying, one of the things that I'm looking forward to with the birth is that I finally get to meet this child who I can't interact with. Meanwhile, she as the mum gets the slightly advanced warning as this, this small human grows inside of her and plays punching bags with her internal organs. Um, I don't get any skin-to-skin -skin contact with my child until after she is born. And so heading into that day, there's this weight of expectation. I can't wait to meet this new member of our family. Advent is a bit like that. 
we have been waiting for the arrival of Christ. God's people at the first Christmas had been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, get this, for somewhere between six and seven hundred years. Perhaps as a church we have a a slightly better than average chance to understand the significance of that wait because we've just made our way through the book of Nehemiah this year, which speaks to us something of this wait. Um, The history of the Hebrews had been that after Moses and Joshua, they had been established in the promised land and the whole idea was that they were going to live with their God in a covenant relationship with him, defined by the law of Moses, which they had promised to keep and under his kingship. But they hadn't kept their covenant. Uh, Instead, what had happened was that the kings of Israel had led the people of Israel into all kinds of wickedness, um, all kinds of evil, all of those evils individually linked to flowing from the one great evil of idolatry, their worship of false gods. And so God had turned them over into exile and they had been conquered by other peoples and removed from the promised land. Now, before this exile had begun... God had sent the prophets beforehand to warn them what was about to take place as a consequence of their conduct. And yet the people did not listen to the prophets. In fact, they tended to kill them. And so God punished his people. Even though God punished his people, it turns out that he had not completely turned them over to destruction. He still remembered them. He remembered Abraham and his faith and the promise he had made to him. And it turns out that our God is long-suffering with his people. Despite their disobedience, despite their wickedness, he had a plan to restore them at some point in the future. And this message of hope and restoration had also been delivered to them by the same prophets who had warned them of the exile. We read the next part of their history when we read Nehemiah. Under the leadership of people like Nehemiah, the temple and the, uh, and, and the city of Jerusalem itself had been rebuilt. The Hebrews had returned to the promised land. And yet, as a nation, they were, as a people, they were a shadow of their former selves. They continued to be oppressed and ruled over by foreign powers. They still weren't any good at keeping covenant with God. And they knew that many of the promises of restoration delivered in advance by these prophets remained unfulfilled. The people of faith, they had their Bible, they had their Old Testament, they had the writings of the prophets and they had read them and they had identified a golden thread running through the ministry of these prophets they read there that God had promised a coming king. One who would be in the line of David, Israel's greatest king, who would save God's people from their slavery and oppression and establish his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And because they had found this in the prophets, there were many who were waiting It was a commonly held belief when we get to the first century. They believed that someone was coming, that there was to come a son of David, an anointed one of God, Messiah, was coming. 
and they were waiting for him to come and to set them free. The events of the first Christmas come some six to seven hundred years after the ministry of the prophets who predicted the downfall of Israel. Which means these people who had been waiting for Messiah had been waiting for generations since before their grandfather's grandfather could remember. Six to seven hundred years, it's a long time. Sometimes this period of history is called the silent years because there are no more prophets during the wait that we're aware of. There's not a lot of angels appearing. There's not a lot of miracles happening. It seems as if God has grown silent for centuries on the pages of history. Can we imagine what that must have been like to have a faith in God defined by him keeping his promises, but not being able to point to anything in the last 600 years of history that proves him right? Like, do you know what was happening on earth six to seven hundred years before today? It's the 1300s, the Black Plague and William Wallace, that long ago. That's how long it has been since the prophets. That length of time, that extended waiting, had had all of the effects on God's people that you would expect it to have. Can you imagine? The faith of some grew cold as they waited. They gave up waiting. God doesn't keep his promises. He's a liar. He's not real. We've been deceived. There were some who instead tried to reinterpret the promises as having some obscure spiritual meaning. We misunderstood. There is no Messiah coming, but there's lots of messiahs, and maybe there's not a literal kingdom. There's a metaphorical kingdom. I think of people like the Sadducees who denied that there were ever going to be a resurrection they had a funny understanding of what this would mean. There were some who made it their business to try and manufacture the promises of God by human effort. Does that that one sound familiar? I think of people like Simon the Zealot, the apostle of Jesus. Nevertheless, there were many who simply believed that God had promised a thing and that he would do it and that their job was to wait. And even after all this time, there was a great sense of messianic expectation. So can we imagine the significance, the weight, the glory, (laughs) the emotion of seeing the events of that first Christmas start to unfold when the God who had seemed so silent begins to speak very loudly and very publicly. The events we are about to read of in Luke chapter 1 are the culmination of more than can be easily expressed. Luke's account in particular starts with (laughs) the visitation of two different people, not very far apart in time, by an angel to inform them of some miraculous pregnancies. Suddenly we have miracles, we have angels, we have promises being fulfilled. The silence is ending. That's what we're reading today. And what we're going to do is we're going to read both of these encounters and then we're going to read about how those two people then uh, met each other and what that looked like. We're going to pull out what it is that we learn about God from this period of history. Here we go, encounter number one. It takes place in the most momentous location possible. 
It takes place inside the temple in Jerusalem where an angel appears to one of the priests serving that day. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, largely because it makes me feel enormous empathy (laughs) for poor Zechariah. Maybe you'll be able to see what I'm talking about by the end. We'll go from verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. This is a thing that was done quite, quite regularly, and the priests took, t- took turns to do this ministry. Uh, and Zechariah, um, sorry, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. <laughs> and then one of the more unnecessary verses in the Bible tells us Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. You don't say that fear fell upon him. Have you ever had that situation where you think you're in a safe and closed space alone, and then it turns out someone else is in there with you that you weren't expecting to? Like, this, like, just this last week, I went to a shop, and I was in the, the closed fridge section of the shop, and I'd been in there for some time looking at a shelf when some other poor chap walked in who clearly did not see me there before he began sort of inspecting the shelves for the item that he was looking for, and he was standing between me and the door. So the only way for me to get out of the fridge was to walk up to him and do the polite, excuse me. And when I said that, the guy just about launched through the glass door and back into the shop in the space of a millisecond, just about had a heart attack. He would have been cold before he hit the ground because of the effectiveness of the fridge. Multiply that by a million. Zechariah has just walked into the temple. At this moment in time, he is meant to be the only person inside this large building. He is doing a thing which who knows how many times in his life he has been the guy drawn by Lot to go and light the incense. Um, And he goes to do this thing which he's done however many times before. And something is a little different today. Candle number one, candelabra number two, giant shiny man. He wasn't there last time I was here. Commence the need for a costume change when he gets home. Verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that's before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And do we feel the weight of this promise? It's not just that it's being delivered by an angel, it's the content of what he's saying. Like the the second to last verse of your and my Old Testament is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. One of the prophets who had predicted the coming of the Messiah, and it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And now here is an angel saying that a miraculous child is going to be born to an old man and his old barren wife. And that this child will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The angel says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. And the symbolism of that is so significant. Because Zechariah has been in the temple that day, lighting the altar of incense. The incense is there to represent the prayers of God's people before the presence of God. Zechariah, he's listening. He's coming. 650 years of waiting. And it's starting to happen. Can we imagine? (laughs) Then we get to Zechariah's response, which is very human. It leads to him getting a mild rebuke. Unsurprisingly, the aging Zechariah finds all of this just a little bit too much to take in. And in verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, well, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, it's important that we understand that his response there, there's a significant phrase, how shall I know this? It reminds us a little bit of what people would say to Jesus later on in his earthly ministry when they would ask him for signs to prove that his teaching was true. What's happening here is that Zechariah doesn't believe the angel and therefore is doubting uh, by implication the Lord who sent the angel. He's asking for extra proof. He's not a complete unbeliever. He's a devout man. He's been described to us as that already by Luke. And yet, even though he is standing in the temple and an angel is there talking to him, saying God's about to fulfill the promises of the prophets, he is quite simply slow to believe. I think think we can sympathize with him, can't we? I'm sure I would have been like him in that situation. And yet, for his unbelief, he gets a slap on the wrist, let's call it. The angel answered him, <laughs> like, ask, ask the glowing man for a sign. I am Gabriel. Now, like, that's, that's significant already. There are not very many occasions in the Bible where an angel identifies themselves by name. This one does. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Realize who you're talking to. I don't know about you. I do not stand in the presence of God. I'm more like John in Revelation in the presence of God. I hit the deck as a dead person in the presence of God. Standing in the presence of God is a significant thing. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It's a bit of a loving rebuke. It's a consequence. It's not, it's not a super nasty one. The baby's still coming. Zechariah's not missing out but he's to know his place. (laughs) Then we get to the amusing scene in verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So poor Zechariah then has to go from all of that and all of the emotion and the fear and the highs and lows of what's just happened inside the building and now he comes out unable to speak and has to try and communicate to a crowd of people what's just happened to him in the closed room. All that he has is the magic of charades. Has a game of charades ever been so high stakes? I don't think so. What happened to you, Zechariah? Two words, word one. Flappy, glowy man. They're not picking it up. 
Okay, maybe, maybe I can try interpretive dance. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. One of the things, it says that he keeps making signs to communicate to them. It's like they didn't get the message straight away. Like he's doing his fluffy man and they're like, a duck. It's like, no, no, it's not a duck. It's an angel. Let me try again because he can't talk. It's funny the more you think about it. <laughs> the, last, the last injury and insult. Uh, the poor man has to finish his shift before he goes home in verse 23. It says, when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. <laughs> After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So there's our first angelic visitation. Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth are blessed despite their imperfect faith, despite his imperfect faith. And yet we feel the weight of prophecies being fulfilled after so long of waiting. What a momentous day, one for the history books. Let's read encounter number two before we compare them and pull out what we learn. In verse 26, we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Same angel, different day, a couple of months later. To a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Once again, I think we can be a little bit gracious with Mary, right? When the angel rocks up and says, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. She's like, hmm, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it makes sense in hindsight. But when you're standing in front of the glowing man, the brain does things. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Once again, do we feel the weight of this promise? The Son of the Most High is coming. There will be no end to his kingdom. He will sit on the throne of his father, David. This coming baby is the Messiah himself, the one that they have been waiting for. How do we even comprehend the magnitude of what Gabriel is promising to Mary here. In fact, even in this passage as he speaks to her, the full significance of what he is communicating is slightly veiled. We have the rest of the story. What is happening here is that God himself, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, is becoming flesh. The sovereign of heaven is about to Enter into the womb of a woman as a helpless child. The one who had made all things in the entirety of creation is going to enter his creation, born as one under the law to redeem those who are under the law, to establish God's kingdom and to save those who have been waiting for him. And this young 
peasant girl, a nobody, is the vehicle for that miracle. An angel is standing in front of her and telling her she is going to carry God within her body. Can you imagine? Mary has some sense of the enormity of this promise. And she says to the angel in verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? So here we have a promise met by a question as well, but it's important for us to notice that Mary's question is different to Zechariah's question. What we're seeing here is not reluctance to believe. It's just that she does not yet comprehend what is being said to her. And she's asking for some clarification. We know it's different because we have the rest of the passage where we see the rest of her response. And we also have a different response from the angel. Here the angel answers her without rebuke. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. And behold... Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then we get to Luke 1.38. And if you're into highlighting and underlighting verses in your Bible, give this one a crack because this is incredible. Because Mary responds like this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departs from her. Isn't that incredible? Now, we we evangelicals, we've often not known how to react to Mary as a result of the way in which uh, Catholic theology has kind of overblown her role in the world and their veneration of her. There's some fairly heretical things that they say about Mary. And yet, (laughs) that should not put us off the lady. Because when we meet her in the Bible, what we see is that she is a person of praise worthy faith. Mary is a hero of the faith who we should all hold in the highest esteem. Yes, in other places in the Bible, we see she has flaws. She has sins. She gets into an argument with Jesus. That's not a great thing to do with God. She isn't divine. She's one of us. But the speed with which she expects what this angel just said to her is absolutely astounding, is it not? It makes her very impressive. Would I have reacted like this I think I would be more of a Zechariah. Look, I'm just going to need a little bit more proof that what you're saying is true, and I'd be spending a bit of time being quiet. Two different responses. One of doubt, still met with blessing, but with a a rebuke. This is not how it's meant to be between me and you. And one of simple acceptance. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be so. There's one more part to this story. It turns out that these two ladies are relatives, And so whilst they are both pregnant with miracle babies, they get together for a very exciting high tea. And when they do, there's a couple of extra miracles just to make sure, just like just in case they hadn't gotten the idea that the 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 babies promised to them by angels weren't important, (laughs) were important. Um, They get together. There's some miraculous signs, uh, and then Mary sings for us a song of praise, which helps us understand the significance of what we're reading. So in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, 
the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is where we get to Mary's song. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Got the wrong page here, sorry. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now, in liturgical churches, uh, they use this song of Mary in their worship at this time of year. Um, they know it by its Latin name, which is the Magnificat, because that is the first word of the song in the Latin translation, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Magnificat is the first word of the song. Uh, and so after the service today, the, the team are actually just going to hit play because that song has been put to music any number of times. And in the background, you'll notice an arrangement by Vivaldi, of all people, putting the Magnificat to words. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's worth listening to. So there's Luke's account <laughs> of the events leading up to the first Christmas. What do we learn amongst all of these stories? Let's pull out some helpful things, and perhaps one or two of them will be useful to you. In, in a sermon like today, where the, there's a bit of a shotgun of application, I often find, personally, that it's helpful to just listen out for the one main thing that the Lord is using to encourage me. So maybe you can find that in here, and then maybe over dinner, grab someone and ask them the question, which, which of the things was it that you found the most encouraging or helpful? Um, I've grouped them into two categories. The first is, what do we learn about God here? And the second is, what do we learn about what it means to worship him? Let's get going. What do we learn about God in these historical events? First thing we learn, surely, is that our God keeps his promises. Is it not true? It might be slow by our reckoning between the delivery of God's promises and their fulfillment. But we need to understand that the delay which we experience is not a delay which comes from God's unwillingness or inability to deliver on what he has promised. God's promises to Abraham of descendants numbering the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore have survived through the long years of Israel's rebellion. 
He still remembers, according to uh, Mary's song, he still remembers his promises to Abraham. His timing, his plan, his planned intended fulfillment survives the ages. God does not measure time as you or I measure time. And when we are dealing with the eternal one, we have to understand that he knows what he is doing better than we do. And so we wait. We wait however long we need to with the concrete expectation that our God keeps his promises. Waiting for God can be hard. That's absolutely valid. Maybe that feels particularly relevant to you right now. Some of us here today find ourselves in that limbo between now and the delivery of the promises we are waiting to see. And that is hard. And what we have here is a call and a reason and an encouragement to persevere in faith. Don't give up. Don't let your faith grow cold. Our deliverer is coming. He is with us even now by his spirit and he will not delay. On the appointed day for the fulfillment of his promises, there they will be and nothing in heaven or on earth will prevent him. See who our God is. Notice the kind of faithfulness that he possesses, which is unlike anybody else who exists, and keep going, assuming that he is true until you can see it. Our God keeps his promises. What else do we learn? We learn that our God's kingdom knows no end. Don't let the humility of this first coming fool you. Jesus Christ is Lord, he is the king. He is the king who sits on David's throne and his kingdom knows no end. This is um, surely central to what we have just read. All other earthly kingdoms end. Do we know that? They are all temporary. But our Jesus rules and reigns forever. They call Rome the eternal city sometimes. Ha! Yet the vandals were able to burn it. There is a day coming when the sun will finally set on the British Empire. But there will never be a day where Jesus does not rule and reign. That day is never coming. His kingdom has begun. It is coming and it knows no end. You and I can be part of a kingdom that will never be shaken. And on that day, Australia won't be so meaningful. Our God keeps his promises. His kingdom knows no end. We also learn something of the nature of his kingdom. Our God's kingdom turns the world upside down. Let me read to you again from the Magnificat, verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. This is good news. This coming king 
who Mary would deliver, the king who rules over an eternal kingdom, rules over a kingdom which inverts the principles of this broken world. Understand what she's saying here. He has come to restore to us a different kind of existence than anything we can know in this broken world. God does not hate the rich. That would be a misunderstanding of what Mary is saying. But they are absolutely being made an example of here as God triumphs over them. Why? The reason why is because here in this broken world, corrupted by sin, the rich are powerful and the poor are powerless. And the mighty sit on their thrones from where they rule, all too often seeking to serve only themselves. The rich and powerful use their wealth and power in order to gain wealth and power for themselves, trampling over those beneath them. There is nothing new about that. That is the story of human history. Every kingdom run by every race in every place in every time. That is a fundamental of human nature. That is life in this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, the kingdoms of this world. But the present order of things will not last forever. In God's kingdom, in the arrival of Messiah, our God has shown strength with his arm and he has brought the mighty low and at the same time exalted the humble. Who is more important to history, Nero or Mary? When they were alive, the answer was Nero. He has satisfied the hungry and sent the rich away empty. Our eternal position in that kingdom is more important than the present positions we can obtain or the luxuries that we live in. Life is about something else. God's kingdom will fix this broken world. All right, what do we learn about following this king in his kingdom, which is upside down? We learn (laughs) that he has mercy for those who fear him. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It is right (laughs) that we would humble ourselves before such a God. His mercy is for those who fear him. How do we enter this kingdom? This inverted, upside down, eternal kingdom? It begins with an awareness that we are not his equals. That even though he raises up Uh, raises us up above where we belong, 
we should approach him with reverence, with holy fear. Who is this person who we claim to know? Surely he is above us. We should approach him with fear and his mercy is for those who fear his name. In the parable, the tax collector prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those who come to our Lord in that way, he does not turn away, not ever. We learn that his mercy is for those who fear him. We also learn that trusting our God is the correct response. Do you see as we read? There is mercy here for both Zechariah and for Mary, even though their responses are so different. Zechariah hesitates to believe. Mary believes quickly. And God is the God of both Zechariah's and Mary's. God is the God of both Peter and of Thomas, doubting Thomas, who gets such a horrible name when he lived such a wonderful life. And yet it is always true that to trust God quickly is the better way. Hopefully a story like this encourages us to be confident that our God has told us the truth in his word and causes us to be quick to believe him. Fast faith is the right response. Not blind faith. We're not saying faith based in nothing. Fast faith. Faith which flows from knowing who God is and what he is like, which believes that he has never lied to us and never will. Who else can say that? Because he is utterly trustworthy, we should believe him. What more must he do? How many more signs do we need before we finally take him at his word? We have every reason to. The last thing that we see is that we too are waiting. And this is what I love about Advent. Having returned to the Father, Jesus has promised us that he is coming back. And so, like the believers in the first century, we find ourselves waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. In many ways, our experience of what it is to trust God is like theirs. Yeah, we know a little bit more of the plan than they knew. Yes, we have the precious gem of the gospel revealed to us with clarity. And yet, our waiting has been longer than their waiting by almost three times now. 700 years Try 2,000, right? That wait has an effect. Because we've been waiting for so long, the faith of some has grown cold. Because we've been waiting for so long, there are those who have reinterpreted the promises of God and decided that they're not coming. Because we've been waiting so long, there are some who have picked up the sword and sought to obtain the promise by human strength. And yet... He is coming, and those of us who believe him are waiting, and his next coming will not be like the last. What the first represented in humility, the next will be in glory. The first created the now and the not yet of his kingdom. 
and the next will bring his kingdom in full force. And so we wait. We wait in expectant hope, in the certainty that our deliverer is coming. We wait as a people made ready. Are you ready for that day? You can be by the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, in some ways it is hard for us to comprehend the excitement of seeing you finally begin to move in the fulfillment of such weighty promises. But Lord, those are the events that lead to our lives here today. Every one of us here tonight who worships you, we are here because you entered this world. You came to save your people and you chose to include us in the plan of your salvation. You called us by name, and you brought us to yourself. You died for our sins, and you rose again, having defeated them. We are here because you came. Lord, we are the fruit of your promises being fulfilled. We are the product of your labor. You have created us. You have built your church. You have established your kingdom. For this we are grateful. And at Christmas we remember. But Lord, we also look ahead. We learn from those people of faith who have gone before us what it means to wait well. We look forward to your coming. We can't comprehend what it will be like because no eye has seen and no ear has heard. We live in bodies which are incapable of experiencing the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed in us until they are redeemed. We can't comprehend, but we can believe that you are coming again. Lord, before your first arrival, you sent John the Baptist to prepare a way. In the spirit and the power of Elijah, we pray that you would use this season, this year in us to do a similar work. That you would be preparing us to receive our king in the right way. That we would be ready by living lives of faithfulness to you as we wait. Lord, that, that thing in me, which has just been waiting for a good opportunity to be dealt with, that is preventing me from coming to you. Lord, would I deal with it now? Father, that doubt that I've been harboring, which I've never voiced, but has caused me to keep my distance from you. Would I finally bring it to light and deal with it? Lord, that dry worship 
just found reading your word a burden and praying a chore because my heart has delighted itself in other things. Lord, would I come to my senses and realize that you are both my greatest need and my greatest treasure. Would you make us ready, we pray. Cause us by your wonderful grace and mercy, delivered to us by Jesus in his first coming, to become like him in his holiness and his love. Do this work in us, we pray, by his spirit living within us and his words given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.